something to complain about. I, and, but that's, that's kind of how we are, isn't it? A couple years ago, we saved up for a few years. We were able to go take the kids to Disney World, and it was an amazing trip. The place that we stayed was fantastic. The experience at the parks was amazing, all of those things. Did we have things to complain about? Absolutely. Did we get cranky? Yes. Did we have fights? Absolutely. Did we have blisters on our feet? Uh, yes, we got hot, we were hungry, we were tired, all the things. Yet our mentality going into the trip was what made the experience. It, it was how we were thinking about it and want, how we were wanting to experience going into it. It's kind of like when you go on vacation. Think about, if you have to close your eyes to, maybe you need this visual in your head right now, think about your favorite place to go. Maybe it's the beach. You hear the waves, you know, crashing. Maybe it's the mountains, coolness, no humidity, sounds amazing. Maybe it's camping, maybe it's traveling abroad, maybe it's going to a big city. I mean, Richmond's great, but still, you know, it's not, it's not the big city. Maybe it's, tra you know, just maybe it's sitting at home <laughs> and having a week that you don't have to do anything. Think about how you feel in that moment. Think about the level of contentment that you experience, the sigh of contentment when you get there. How you, how you experience that moment has so much to do with how you think about that and how you hold your memories, even though sometimes vacation doesn't always go exactly the way that you want to. Your mentality has so much to do with that. And so I want you to think and I want you to imagine, what would it be like if you could live your life in such a way that the same way that you feel when you go to your happy place is the same way that you feel wherever you are? Is that possible? Is that something that we can achieve? Over the next few weeks in this new sermon series, we're going to be looking at what it looks like to be content in some of the areas of life it's most difficult to do so. Uh, and this morning, we're going to kind of define contentment and what it looks like to have a godly outlook on being satisfied with life. As the saying goes, we've all heard the idiom, idiom, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And we say that a little bit tongue in cheek because we know that's not always the case, even though we convince ourselves so often that it is. But here's the other side of the equation. We're tempted to jump the fence because we think the grass is greener on the other side. Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes the grass is greener on the other side. But here's the problem. There's two issues. In the country, we know this. The first issue is that the grass is always greener where the septic tank is. Okay? So that's the first issue. The second issue is even if you do jump that fence and the grass is greener, you still have the same issue that you did on the other side of the fence, is that you brought yourself. And you brought your issues along with you. For example, here is how I would love for my yard to look. Okay, like I don't care about the patio and the, 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 the plants there, but I'm talking about the grass very specifically. That, to me, just looks beautiful. I mean, you know, the fairway of a golf course or something like that, that's how I would like my yard to look. That is not how my yard looks at, at all, like not even close. And I'd say that I'd love for my yard to look like this, but to be honest, you know, if you were to ask me, are you willing to put the time and resources into making your yard look like that? I would say, of course not. Like, I'm not going to go get a degree in turf management. I'm not going to buy specialty equipment. I'm not going to fertilize and overseed and spend all the time mowing constantly, get the roller to attach to the back of my mower so I can make the grass lay one direction. That's how they do that. I don't know if you, you knew that. Uh, and make it just look perfect all the time. I'm not going to put the time and energy into doing something like that. So do I have any right to not be content with my grass and my lawn now? Of course not. And we know that. 
It's one thing to be dissatisfied with where you are in life and use that as a motivation to improve in tangible ways. It's a whole other thing to be whiny and malcontent and be filled with self-pity because you want something that you aren't willing to work for. And there's the other side of that too, that some things, it doesn't matter how hard you work for it, you're just never gonna attain and you're never gonna achieve. That's tough too sometimes to be okay with that. There's some things that no matter how much headspace and resources you sacrifice to them, you won't be able to change your past, for example. You can't predetermine your future and what's going to come. We don't know what's going to happen. But we can all learn to be content regardless of circumstance because any problem that we have with contentment has to do with us and not the situation that we're in. And here's the thing that trips us up most when it comes to being convinced that is true is that oftentimes contentment isn't even on our radar. I mean, if, if we're honest, most of us would be thinking, man, I, I wish this were a sermon series on happiness rather than contentment. It's right there in our Declaration of Independence. It's ingrained in our culture. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, how would that read if it said the pursuit of contentment? Would we be nearly as excited about that? No. I mean, of course, this is the Declaration of Independence, so we're not nearly excited anyway. But here, here's the thing. Like, while I, I don't think it's the case that God, I, I think God absolutely cares whether or not we're happy. I think what he does care about, uh, even more so than that, is the relationship between our contentment and happiness. Like, which comes first? Most of us live and find ourselves living in such a way, I've been there too, where we think, man, if only we can achieve happiness, then that's how we would get to be content in our life. And it's not new, new thinking. Thomas Jefferson was an Epicurean. He subscribed to Epicurean philosophy. And so obviously that would come through in how he writes the Declaration of Independence. There's subtlety and nuance here to be sure, but how we define these words like, and how we think about the concepts of happiness and contentment and which should come first and which one dictates the other matters. And so let's just look at the definitions of these words real quick uh, uh, together. Happy or happiness, favored by luck or fortune. And of course, you can find a lot of other definitions here, but these are the ones that matter as we're, we're talking about comparing and contrasting these words. Or enjoying or characterized by well-being and contentment. So contentment or being contented is the feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. One of these is contingent upon the other. Contentment is the thing that comes first. Happiness is what comes after when we pursue contentment. Which you, prefer, which you pursue first is the difference between only being happy when the perfect situation comes along in your life, and maybe that's one or two times when you go on vacation. It's the difference between that or being happy where you are in much broader context. Consistent happiness is contingent upon your pursuit of contentment. Now notice, I didn't say constant happiness. Because there are moments where we're not going to feel happy or content, no matter what's going on, because we live in a broken world. But consistent happiness is contingent upon our pursuit of contentment. And the secret to all of this, to experiencing this, is revealed in the New Testament letter of Philippians written by Paul in chapter 4. And so if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 4 in your Bible. And as you're turning there and looking at at this passage, I want to let you know a couple things that are going to be important uh, to why we're looking at this passage and, and what it means for us. The first thing is this. 
The context in which Paul writes these words, this entire letter to the church at Philippi, is that he is in jail. Specifically, he's in house arrest, and he will be for two years in Rome. He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. And so he writes what we're about to read about contentment in this context in Philippians chapter 4, that he's been imprisoned. Uh, He shouldn't be there, and he's suffering as a result of that. Like, it wasn't a cushy thing, house arrest then. It was a little bit different than how we might think about house arrest now. Uh, And so that's the context in in which he's writing this. And the second thing I want to just prepare you for is we're going to take one of the most popular verses that's used in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Many of us might have that memorized. Uh, And we're going to debunk how it's been misused and abused by by people. And so I I just want to forewarn you about that. So as we jump into Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, Paul is putting on the finishing touches to his letter to the church at Philippi that he had started on one of his missionary journeys, and he's thanking them for a gift that they had given him to help sustain him during his house arrest. Okay? So this is what he writes. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. At first glance, at the beginning of those verses, it may sound like Paul is just being a little bit ungrateful that this church had gotten together resources to send for him to make sure that he could eat while he's in in house arrest. Like, why can't you just thank you? Uh, Say thank you. (laughs) Come on, man. Just, Just appreciate the gift and move on. But instead, what Paul does is he uses this as a teachable moment to give the church at Philippi a gift as well as he talks about contentment. He wants to properly contextualize his perspective to the church, and that is this, that the gift that he was sent did not determine how he was experiencing his situation. In other words, it's not the external stimuli that predetermined how he was going to wrestle with and deal with the things that he was dealing with in that moment in his life as he's in prison for no reason. Paul is seeking to encourage the church with the knowledge that we have an opportunity afforded to us by God to choose how we face any and every situation. And and the big thing that he's communicating is that even in our most undesirable circumstances, we can be content. Now, your reaction to that may honestly and, and perfectly, I, like I understand maybe this, <laughs> and, I, and I, totally, I totally get that. Like most of the time I struggle, I struggle with this as well, but this is the truth of what Paul is trying to communicate. And, and the big problem is, is how often Philippians 4.13 is misused and misunderstood. So if we take this phrase... I can do all things. See, the NIV is a little tricky in the way that translates this because it knows that we've misused this passage so, so often. And so that's why when I read the text, many of you, if you're using the NIV, it says, I can do all this because they've switched the word things there. But this is what Paul says. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And the way that, the way that I don't know how you see this verse popularly used, but the way I see it in most contexts is, a, is an athlete. A professional athlete is using this. It's a very popular verse among sports uh, because this is the thing that gives us the encouragement that we can achieve whatever we set our mind to. 
Like if we work hard enough, if we set our goals well enough, if we think through things properly enough, if we're prepared as best as we possibly can, like we can win the national championship. We can have the parade in the city. We can have all of our hopes and dreams fulfilled because this is the type of strength that Jesus gives us for us to be able to achieve whatever we possibly want to and have our desired outcome. For, for the overwhelming majority of human beings, though, there's a fairly quick test we can put Philippians 4.13 to to determine if the meaning of the verse is that we can do whatever we want to, we can achieve whatever we set our mind to and work hard enough to do. Um, and it's just one simple question, and this is it. Can you dunk? Okay, not a whole lot of basketball fans. That's cool. I, I understand. <laughs> but can you dunk a basketball? And some of you like, may not care. that like, Okay, that's not a desire that you have. But I mean, think, think, think about this, this verse and the context of what Paul is saying here and how it's often used. And I mean, can, like I used to be able to, but I can't anymore. And as much as I would love to and impress you with being able to do that, no, I can't dunk. Most people, there's like half a percent of Americans would ever be able to dunk a basketball. So can you actually do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Like, is that the point of that verse? Well, maybe not. Maybe it means something different. Philippians 14, 13 is actually not about achievement. It's about the strength that we're given to overcome both failure and success. Overcome failure, that sounds good. Overcome success, that sounds a little weird, maybe. Here's a reminder of what Paul says before. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. It would seem like contentment would be one of those things that we'll kind of know when we see it. That when we, when we experience it, like we'll have that sigh of contentment, it'll be this amazing thing. Whatever uh, you know, thing that you want to achieve, it's, it's an innate reaction that we're going to have. If there's any innate reaction that we have, though, it's discontentment. It's dissatisfaction. I mean, you think about how often a new phone comes out. Every year, there's going to be a new iPhone. Every year, there's going to be a new version of your car. Every year, there's going to be a new version of your favorite tennis racket. I mean, whatever you're into, whatever your thing is, there's going to be something. And it's because companies know and marketers know that we're dissatisfied and we're discontent all the time. A buddy of mine recently upgraded to an iPhone 8, and he was excited. I think his previous phone was like an iPhone 6 or something like that. And he was perfectly cool with it until he realized that he could not talk and look like a unicorn when he sent text messages. And so, like, he couldn't do the unicorn and emoji. And once he realized that, he was like, oh, man, if only I had spent just a little bit more money, got a little bit newer phone, then I'd be able to do, then I'd be able to do that. We're so discontent with so many different things. We can be in the happiest place on earth. We can have the most amazing technology in our hands that exists and still not be quite satisfied with that. Paul, however has discovered contentment in both the best and worst circumstances. It didn't matter if he was in poverty or whether or not he had prosperity. Where poverty can make us feel bitter and prosperity can make us feel prideful, Paul learned that neither extreme can account for what his attitude should be because of how Jesus strengthens us, because of how Jesus enables us to withstand the pressure of either to determine our moods and actions. I've learned to be content when Paul says this. This is kind of a riff off of Stoic philosophy. 
at, at the time. But there's a difference. In Stoic philosophy, it's the desire or the attempt to become self-sufficient. And what, what Paul is saying is, I've learned how to become Jesus-sufficient. Most of us would say, yeah, but if I could pick, you know, between the poverty and the prosperity thing, you like, I know which one I would pick. <laughs> Does being rich help? Does it make things easier? Sure, yeah. Having more money, I mean, most of us would agree, yeah, that would make things, uh, that would help. It also comes with a lot more responsibility to care for our fellow man and to provide for the work of the kingdom of God. And there's temptation there that we have to face. And we always want just a little bit more, right, to be just a little bit happier, but Paul is strengthened by the richness he has spiritually. And so he describes what that looks like just a few verses previous to this passage. In Philippians chapter 4, same chapter, just a few verses higher up. In verse 4, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And so it's not so much our circumstances or our situation that dictates like, how we respond to life. It's, it's how we choose to live regardless of our situation and regardless of our circumstance that de determines how we respond to life. The secret that Paul has learned is this, is that Jesus is greater than everything else. That, that is the thing. That's why Paul felt strengthened regardless of his circumstance, that he could handle being in want or having plenty is because he had learned that it's not those things that determine who we are and how we operate and how we experience those things. It's Jesus, and that's why he came. Nothing can overshadow the fullness of life that we have through Jesus, and this is the secret that Paul learned. Paul identifies the secret even more clearly later on in Philippians 4:19. He says, "My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus." And so the question is if contentment is not going to be just this innate thing that we experience and that we recognize when we see it, if it's something that we have to that has to be developed, it's a strength, it's a muscle that we have to work out. What is the thing that helps us get stronger at that? It's it's obedience. That's what Paul is outlining at the beginning of this chapter for the Philippian church. It's trusting God enough on his word to act on it. Trusting God regardless of how convenient or advantageous it may seem in the moment. When Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment, the word that's used there for, for, for learning is, is actually literally uh, the word for initiation. And so, so Paul is saying, I have been initiated into understanding what contentment really is. And here's the thing, any and all circumstances that we go through in this life with the right perspective on Jesus initiates us into the need to find our dependence on him. See, when following Jesus and living in our faith is situational, we miss out on the divine contentedness that produces trans transcendent peace no matter the situation. Obedience, then, becomes the way we strengthen our ability to maintain proper perspective. 
whether they're good times or bad. Sometimes even when we're thinking positively, we still need to be reminded of the type of perspective we're called to have through contentment. Have you ever heard of a Pyrrhic victory? I just discovered this this week. Um, Pyrrhus was a Greek king, and he was consumed with this idea that he's going to be another version of Alexander the Great, and that he's going to conquer the Romans that were the upstarts that were coming and, and starting to take things over. And so a Pyrrhic victory is named after him, and this is what a Pyrrhic victory is. It's a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to defeat. Someone who wins a Pyrrhic victory has also taken a heavy toll that negates any true sense of achievement. Because what ends up happening is that Pyrrhus goes and he fights the Romans and he has some success in battle, but he loses so many key officers, so many key people that essentially he had to leave in defeat and go back home and couldn't continue any, anymore. And what's interesting about this is that he has a, an advisor named Cineus who talked to him and tried to talk him out of this uh, pursuit of world conquest before it ever happened. And so I, I want to just highlight for you what that conversation looked like. Cineus comes up to Pyrrhus and he knows that as a king, he can't just say, hey, what you're about to do is really stupid. So stop being an idiot and do something different, right? You just can't approach kings like that even when it's appropriate. And so he asked Pyrrhus a ser series of questions. He says, how would, how would you use a victory against the Romans? Like, what would you do after taking Italy? And he said, well, I'd take over Sicily. Oh, okay. So once you defeat, you know, Italy, take over Italy and take over Sicily, what are you going to do then? He said, well, then I'm going to take, take over Libya and Carthage so that no enemies would threaten him uh, in, anymore. So nobody could offer further resistance. And so then Sinius asked Pyrrhus, what would you do when we have got everything subject to us? And the reply of Pyrrhus was this. He says, we shall be much at ease and we'll drink bumpers, my good man. Uh, that's a full glass is what that means. Drink bumpers, my good man, every day, and we'll gladden one another's hearts with confidential talks. And then Cineus says this. He says, surely this privilege is ours already. And we have at hand, without taking any trouble, those things to which we hope to attain by bloodshed and great toils and perils, after doing much harm to others and suffering much ourselves. And so here's the thing, because we don't really talk like that. Here's what Cineus is saying. He's urging Pyrrhus to be satisfied with his own possessions, which were sufficient enough for enjoyment. For him to enjoy and be satisfied with, to be content with the very thing that he said he wanted at the end of all of his conquests and all of his work and all of his toils. So the battle for what we want, because most of the time that's where we have trouble with contentment, right? The battle for what we want is not always worth who and what we'd have to sacrifice to get to it. And sometimes what we actually want is already at our fingertips. It's a lot closer than what we might think. Any victory won through self-sufficiency or contingent upon external circumstances outside of God's glory eventually leaves us empty. The sufficiency of contentment through Jesus gives us the strength to rely on God for our needs and withstand the temptation of our wants. Because that's the struggle here. That's, that's the battle. It's not our external circumstance or situation. It's, it's within our own hearts. 
And so I, I just want to ask you, like, where, where might you be feeling discontent in your life? And what's the real issue there? Is it something that God is calling you to, or is it really just something that internally you're, you're struggling with being satisfied with what has been provided to you already? Because what Paul says earlier in the chapter, the, the example that he gives is like, hey, to learn how to strengthen your contentment muscle, you, you've got to consider, like, how am I being obedient to God in this situation? Am, am I being obedient to him in prayer? Am I allowing God to determine my thought life, like how I, how I think about the situation and circumstance that I'm in? Am I putting into practice the things that God has called me to do, regardless of where I find myself and what's going on in my life? Like, am, am I content in who and what he's called me to be? Contentment is not a feeling to attain. It's a muscle to be exercised in each area of our life. And contentment is the sustainable happiness that God wants for each and every one of us. And the secret is trust through obedience to Jesus in everything. And so as we prepare our hearts and minds to take communion this morning, kind of close, uh, close this time of looking at God's word, I, I, I want to I give you an example of what this looks like and how we experience that in this time of communion that we're taking right now. Is that in Luke chapter, in first, sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul identifies for the Corinthian church, starting in verse 26 through 29, he says, when, when we're coming together and we take this moment of communion, we're proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we do that, it matters how we're coming together. What we're thinking about, what's been going in our life throughout the week, all those things matter. And he says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Which sounds like really strong language. You know, as we come together and, and take communion, it's like, okay, this is a celebration of, of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and, and that's amazing. But part of that is, like, when we come together and as we prepare before we've even shown up to this place to share in this meal together, like, have we considered in my life the way that I live through whatever I'm going through right now? Am I content with the fact that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose again, and that he enables me with the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to be satisfied fully in him. Is, is that how I'm approaching this time in this moment of celebrating the risen Christ? Because that's what we're all invited to and that's what we're all called to do is to be fully content, to be fully satisfied in him. That's the secret to contentment. Let's pray. God, we thank you for just, just a, a time to, to stop, uh, to get the, the noise of everyday life um, to the side, uh, kind of leave it at the door to come in here and to focus specifically and worship on you because it gives us the perspective that we need to see you everywhere in each and every part of our lives. Taking this time to... Um, to not be distracted by everything else allows us to see you for who you are, to understand how you're showing up everywhere else we go. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for this time to celebrate you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.